This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Max Zielemann, co-founder and lead developer of Ulysses, the ultimate writing app for Mac, iPad, and iPhone. Max, thanks for joining me. Uh, thank you very much for having me. So Ulysses is a great writing app for Mac, iPad, and iPhone, but there's lots of writing apps. So what makes Ulysses different in your mind? Whenever I need to explain the app, I usually say it's revolving around four ideas. So the first is uh, it was a really focused writing experience, so you can concentrate on the text, and that is by hiding options, uh, being plain text, and just nice UI design that doesn't have many buttons. Um, the second is organization. So Ulysses allows you to organize all your writings, everything you've ever written in a single library. So you don't need to look up files. You just have it in Ulysses. There's no file names and nothing like that. The third is export because anything you've written either dies in the app where you've written it or you want to get it out. And so it exports to, to blogs and PDF and Word files. So getting text out and making that nucleus, nucleus is very important. And the fourth thing is uh, making it ubiquitous, having it on all your devices all the time. Everything that you have in Ulysses is stored on iCloud and that way it's always available on all your devices. Text isn't big. So even if you've written like dozens of novels uh they're just a few megabytes and so we can just sync it every everything everywhere and you can always have it so when did you first create ulysses we started in 2002 and it came out 2003 july so you've been working on it for 15 years now right so how close is it to what you're originally envisioned now 15 years later it depends on how abstract you define the vision. So uh, I think the, the original vision was to make it the best app for writing. And that still is the vision. But if you get more more concrete, then uh, it's sort of divide, diverted. I mean, mm-hmm. things have really changed. Uh, that didn't used to be mobile devices. Right. Um, there was no, no, no cloud, no sync. And um, people used to sit on small screens and... All that kind of stuff. So it, it really, yeah. really has changed over, over the years and the interpretation of that. But the idea is still the same. So what are you spending your time doing right now? Right now, I'm wrapping up the year. Yeah. So we are trying to ship the final bug fix release. And um, actually, it's done, but it's still hanging in review. And then um, I'm just looking at what I've left off uh earlier and getting will be getting back to next year mm-hmm. right configuring a new build server and all the kind of stuff that you do like cleanup jobs in the mm-hmm. in the end of the year mm-hmm. what's your opinion or how do you handle the app review cycle how do you look at that for your business and as a team so we see it as a as a necessary evil sort of thing mm-hmm. so um it's never done real harm to us so that's probably the the best or the, the the conclusion I can draw with that. Yeah, there's never been anything going really wrong just because of app review, but we need to calculate it in. We need to calculate in the risk of getting rejected, and what used to be before was that you we needed to calculate in a really long time, 
right? Yeah. When the app review was like random seven days plus minus four mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was like, well, we want to ship on this date and now we need to submit two weeks early and we hope that we can get one review round and maybe one rejection round done by the release date. And if not, then we have a problem because we want to tell, like, for example, we could press a date up front and all the kind of stuff. So that was sort of the the biggest problem we ever had with, with the app mm-hmm. review. So Ulysses is on Mac, iPad, and iPhone. Your big releases are simultaneous at this point. Is that right? Right. Are your bug fixes, are you doing them simultaneously too? Almost always. Yeah. Unless if there's not a critical thing in either app. Mm-hmm. And it's only either app, but we share a lot of code. So a lot of the fixes that we do affect both platforms. So yeah. What does the team look like now? Uh, we are total 14 mm-hmm. people now. We have me as developer and one, two, three more full-time developers, two development trainees. We have my partner who does the concept then we have a designer Mm -hmm. and we have a marketing and a marketing intern and we have three part-time customer support Mm -hmm. and if you add that up i guess it's 14. yeah (laughs) from a development perspective how are you you know four people doing mac ipad and iphone that's a lot of work right Right. <laughs> How are you dividing that up? How are you making it work? So it's usually that one of us is working on one feature. Mm-hmm. And as we need to get it out, then we usually um, join forces and like work together on something. Mm-hmm. So for example, with the subscription switch, when one of my colleagues started working on it for, and he's been working on it for like four months, and then the others joined in and we did it all together, like finishing it up, getting it done. <laughs> Mm-hmm. For other features, it's usually one person does one feature. And they're doing it across all the platforms. Right. So you mentioned you had shared code. Uh, how are you managing that shared code? And, and what level of the app is it that's mostly shared? So we do have a huge portion that is in the model. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, we have interim models um, that describe parts of the view, how it looks like, how it should be structured, all that kind of stuff. So I would say like we have like half code shared, mm-hmm. 50%, and the rest is platform-dependent interface code. So for any sizable feature, you do it first on one platform, and then you bring it to the other, and that is like mm-hmm. half more work or a third more work. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Are you happy overall with the way that is? Or would you do something differently knowing what you know now? I'm pretty happy with that. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're wasting too much energy on the UI parts. I think having separate UI implementations makes it easier to to optimize for the platforms. Mm -hmm. We do have a few minor bits of the UI that have shared drawing code or something like that. And whenever we want to change one platform, we need to like add a lot of, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's, it gets sort of not so pretty anymore. Uh, if you, if you want to have it look differently on mm-hmm. one platform than the other. Mm-hmm. So it's good to have it, have it double. And because there's a lot of optimization going into it. I mean, you, you're doing stuff twice sometime, but then things are working so differently on a Mac than, than on iOS that it, mm-hmm. that's just fine. And which platform did you start on? 
So the app started on Mac. I mean, mm-hmm. we've been doing that for 15 years now. So yeah. there was no iOS back then. Right. And we only got to iOS, I think, two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. So along the way, I understand at some point you did a rewrite. Right. That was five years ago. Mm-hmm. Yes. We started like seven years ago and it took us one and a half years. And I think five years ago it shipped. Mm-hmm. But it was also Mac only. Was there any eye in that rewrite to, well, if we want to be on iOS, we're facilitating that by doing this rewrite? No. Or was that not on the roadmap at all no. at that point? Or- I think when we started on the rewrite, there was still no iPhone. Okay. And even then, when we were done with the rewrite, iPhone was still just like this super, super tiny device. And, and the SDK was just launching and it was obvious that there was no support for big apps and, and all the apps that were, they were quite simplistic, mm-hmm. quite small. And only years later, it got more complex, especially with the iPad and then also iPhone apps got more complex. Mm-hmm. So in the initial rewrite, there was nothing that we thought, well, that would be good when we mm-hmm. bought to a different platform. Actually, the rewrite was, it was completely new, but it was still quite horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what made you initially decide we need to do a rewrite? What was the driver? So we need to go back in history then. So Mm -hmm. when we started out and and the first Ulysses, like two years after shipping, we had a certain feature set. It had interface state restoration. So you would close the app and open it up again and would return to the exact same position where I left off. It had automatic backups. It had a full screen mode. And I think there's there's a few other things that, mm. that it had that then later on came into the OS. Right. Mac OS added, added full screen, added time machine for backups and added state restoration. They removed it, partially removed it again, but mm-hmm. at that time that was uh, what it was like. Mm. And so it was, it was obvious that the old app that we had that we were doing in part-time we would have a hard time to make it work great with the OS. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing. And the other thing was that I think there was a year when iCloud was announced. And it was clear that the trend was going towards having everything in the cloud, having it synced, even just if it's two or three Macs, then you would still want to have all your all your documents synced, all your texts. And we realized that the, the old version, which was using a package format, was not very well suited for that. So you would have like a big project that you would need to put somewhere and then it would get synced. And it was still in the early days of iCloud and there was no iCloud drive where you could actually put something and then have it synced for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- you would have to do it on your own with your own interface. And that's when we decided we need to go from a project-based UI to a library-based UI to a shoebox UI, just like, just like photos mm-hmm. and have everything within the app and once the user does not have any control over files anymore, that's A, good for the user, and B, we can sync it. Mm-hmm. So, and, and these, these things all came together. And, and there's been, there's been a lot of legacy code in there. That's why I didn't even copy a single line of code from the old version. <laughs> it was really a from scratch rewrite, everything new. So, did the rewrite go exactly as you were expecting? No. <laughs> Of course not. <laughs> I had done uh, a few rewrites before and they all went horribly, horribly wrong in terms of like um, what the time estimate was. Yeah. And our initial thought was that we could do it like just me and, and my partner, the design partner, we could do it like in half a year. 
and we ended up adding two more developers so we were like four and it took us one and a half years and we did only like a third of the concept so the original plan got cut every single week we were like having video conference calls and we were like saying okay let's drop this let's drop this and let's drop this and it was an endless endless circle of just dropping things and cutting down and um yeah why do you think it is that it's so easy to underestimate the rewrite and get it wrong i've never really thought that through because maybe i don't feel like i have to do a big rewrite anytime soon so maybe <laughs> i would then reflect more on that um, but you started by but, saying you had you had underestimated it before too right but i think the problem that we had was we were aiming higher than we were before mm -hmm. and before we had a product that was done only in part-time but it, we did it for like nine years so we've been working on something for nine years and thought we could redo it in half a year full-time and and that's just a false point to start on right and then you aim to do it better you mm -hmm. aim to do it more flexible uh you have big plans for the future and you need you think you need to prepare for all those things that are coming and then you build big structures and and then you realize they don't work and then you need to tear them down again and then you need to redo and all that other kind of stuff so that's i don't know i, I think we didn't really think it through mm -hmm. right we just went for it yeah it felt right i think in my experience there's also this when you do take the time to think it through i'm just really optimistic about what it's going to yeah right like absolutely approach it inherently optimistically instead of probably what i should do which is be really pessimistic about it and assume yeah. that it's not going to go well and in the case where it doesn't go well well what might be a realistic time frame then you you probably know uh the rule of pi <laughs> So say you start on, on, on one point mm -hmm. and you want to go to another point and you think that is your goal, but your actual goal is like twice the distance. But you didn't go there straight, but you go there in a sinus curve. Mm -hmm. And then you have a sinus curve and you know that your original estimate needs to be multiplied by 3.141 <laughs> to get to a better estimate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that still wouldn't have helped us. Um, yeah. was even worse, but we usually say, how long will it take? Okay. That, it will take a month and then say, okay, it will take three months. Mm -hmm. And, and that usually, that usually works out somehow, uh, somehow, but like factor three is really a huge number. Yeah, it really is. So I can gather that the answer to, would you have done something differently? <laughs> or if you could have had done the release in six months instead of a year and a half, you probably would take that option, right? Right. But it came out okay, right? Well, so we are bootstrapped. So we don't have, we don't mm -hmm. have any, any VC money. So we need to work with the money that we have. And the issue was that we had an old app that was selling less and less well. And we wanted to replace it with a new shiny app. So the income that we got got less and less. Mm -hmm. But the, because we needed to add more people, our costs increased and increased. And so the the last couple of months were really horrible. It was like working 80-hour weeks mm -hmm. and working on weekends and sleeping really badly. And, and really the last half year was, was just horrible for everyone. 
And I never want to repeat that. And once we shipped it, we had to ship because we were like literally running out of money, like one month later shipping and we would have been bankrupt, mm -hmm. even with loans. So we would have really like hit the wall. Yeah. So we had to ship. And what we shipped was extremely buggy. And that led to massive support volume. We were like, we were, you were answering one email and you were getting two news. Mm -hmm. Everybody was answering emails for a whole week and the inbox count only got larger and larger every day. <laughs> the revenue was good. It sort of worked out that way, uh, but we had still loans to pay off and the initial release didn't, didn't do that. So we only really got onto a good path when we launched the iPad and then the iPhone versions. So those really changed the game for us in terms of users Yeah. we can get and in terms of making the app so so useful and, and also by that so well known that we get the number of, of of users that we need are you familiar with the sunk cost fallacy uh not exactly <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so that, I, i can that, imagine where this is going but yeah. <laughs> so that's when you you know you've spent so much money on something that you feel like you have to spend more in order to recover from the failure And right. in that scenario where you are spending more than you're taking in, in service of doing this next release, which is hopefully going to pay off, did you ever consider, we just need to cut our losses here and stop? We did, but we were, I don't know, we were doing this on principle. Like mm -hmm. We wanted to show everybody that an app like we were working on was possible that not everything needed to be like everything was at that moment. So it was received like that. I mean, the, it was buggy and all of that, but the concept showed through. And it really did set a new standard at the, at the day it was released. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have too much pre-announced, so it was really like a boom. So that really worked out. And we always believed in the fact that we will succeed once we have it out. <laughs> we did consider stopping, but not for like we only need to go that and that more, but we can bring it to an end before we are bankrupt. Right? Yeah. So who are Ulysses' ideal users? Who makes up the majority of the customer base? It is writers and a lot of other people that you wouldn't really expect. Mm -hmm. So of, of course there's writers, there's novelists or uh, poetrists. Mm -hmm. um, but we also have a lot of journalists and a lot of uh, managers that take their meeting notes and sync them to other devices or write proposals for projects. We have students that write their thesis in there or professors that prepare their courses. And anecdotal, they are quite special kinds of users. Uh, so one is priests. Hmm. Priests need to write sermons and especially priests in training need to write a whole lot of sermons every single week. They're like writing a book <laughs> every mm -hmm. week. So those are people you usually don't think about. But there's a lot of people that need to write a lot of text. We always tell our customers, you can't just put an app online and expect people to use it. You know, we can create the best product possible, but people need to find it and use it. And so how has that worked for you? You have a pretty popular app. How did that happen? <laughs> That's that's also a very good question. <laughs> I'm happy that we are in a situation where we were popular. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when we started out, I think we didn't do much. So when we started, I was 15. 
you know i was still in high school i was like a hobby project and was like hey let's do this and let's see what happens so we didn't do much we wrote to a few news outlets maybe mostly german not even english language news outlets so just be, I'm, i'm from germany so that's mm-hmm. uh, why we just contacted news outlets and there was like it was still in the dark times i mean it was when 10.1 was the current mac os still it's it's really in the early days so there was a really small market small niche and users would talk about new apps that come out that was in the in the beginning mm-hmm. so it wasn't wasn't crowded at all it was like people were actively looking for new things it also when websites like version tracker yeah I, th- I don't think it's still around but i think mac update is still around mm-hmm. where you just get a list of new app releases and and app versions and you would scan it every single day and, and look for new things that you find interesting so it was still those times so we were just discovered and after that i think it was mostly um word by mouth mm-hmm. we had almost a decade to build a loyal user base with word to mouth Uh, I think that is still the most most valuable asset that we have. I mean, we have a good product and people like to share it and people like to talk about it. Mm-hmm. They just tell their friends and the friends tell their friends. And uh, that friend happens to be a blogger and he writes a, writes a blog post about the app that he likes and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely the number one asset. We later on started doing uh, running a blog, doing tutorials, doing a bit wider spread like interviewing some of our users and their working habits and trying to give like a little bit at least of writing advice for novelists or for taking notes or for something so we we do some content marketing and we now also run all those things that we do through a mailing list and that's constantly growing so we do some marketing now but not really like buying advertisement or something like that Mm-hmm. that never really worked for us we tried it multiple times and maybe we're doing it wrong <laughs> quite possibly so um well you're certainly we obviously don't have but you're in the top percentile of apps in the app store in terms of like especially among writing apps like in terms of mm-hmm. success you know there's a lot of other apps that are just individual developers who are not able to make a living on their, their right. app. obviously you have a good product that's a big part of it <laughs> but is it a momentum at this point i don't know um it doesn't really feel like momentum at the moment right right at least right now so there were some points where we did really have momentum for example when the iphone app launched i mean we do all the things we do press releases we do press kits we actively approach uh, news outlets and all that kind of stuff but they also need to like actually cover us And mm-hmm. then some outlets only talk about us because they saw it in other outlets. So, mm-hmm. like, oh, if those guys find it serious, mm-hmm. and we should look at it as well. So, is it possible that other people just aren't doing that? That the things that seem easy to you are just not done as well or at all by other people? Or I, I, I can't really say that. So, but I mm-hmm. think the answer to your question is, I think we really have an outstanding product. Mm-hmm. And that really makes a difference. Mm-hmm. So it really is like the last 5% that we spend most time on. And that really, really makes the, all the difference in in the success. So that is something we always hear from, from our users. And, and almost everybody always repeats, it's just so well done. So that really comes through with every review we get. And I would say that is that is the main point. 
Mm-hmm. And and it really takes time. So it is. I mean, it is energy and it is money spent. It's money spent on reiterating and redoing things and doing that that pie number of pie rule. Like like not like this is the deadline. You need to be finished and whatever you have, we ship. Yeah. Uh, it's like oh, it's not good enough. We need to redo it and then re- redo it again. And and we had features that we read it like four or five times. Like literally read it mm-hmm. until it was right. And I would say not many developers have the courage to take that time uh-huh. because they feel like we need to get it out. Yeah. I mean, I, I have the same urge as well. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like I'm always the, the one to say, like, right, it's good enough. Let's ship it. And then um, uh-huh. someone else says, no, it's not. And especially my partner is the one that yeah. says, no, it's not, not good enough. See, this and this. And we can't, can't you try this? And then I would say it's not only the iteration, but it's also like the kind of compromises that we make. Uh-huh. that's something I really, really, really had to learn. I mean, we're working together for 15 years now, so I know by now I know how, how things go. But he is really not compromising on usability. Uh-huh. So, And we used to have this discussion where he was like, yeah, it should be like this and that. And I was like, what if I do it the other way? It would be much simpler to do. And he was like, but it's worse. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, well, but it's like, it's like five times the work for something that's only slightly better. And he was like, yeah, but it's better, isn't it? And at that point, I couldn't like disagree because, yeah, I see what you mean. And I know it's so much better. And he just talked me into the ground and then I had to do it the better way. And, but that is, um, being really hard on, on making compromises in terms of quality. Rather leave something out and get the other things right. I think that's what a lot of designers and developers, people who are building their own products want to hear. They want to hear if you take the time and create something truly good, it can be successful. But it can almost also almost kill you. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a lesson from these 18 months of rewriting the app. It took that long because we wanted to get the quality so high. Mm-hmm. So, And you said already that you were one month away from going out of business because of it. Really, literally, yeah. <laughs> so previously, Ulysses was paid up front, you know, one-time yeah. purchase. And then I think you did one paid upgrade along the way, multiple paid upgrades along the way. The rewrite was just a new purchase. Mm-hmm. We did one paid upgrade, like, really back. Okay. And then we then the rewrite was a new purchase. And then we only launched a new platform, the iOS app. That's okay. it. So that was the upgrade, like upgrade to have it yeah. on multiple platforms. And so when did you make the change to subscription? This August. So it's four months back. And you have a an article that explains some of the reasons why, which we can link to in the show notes. But in your own words, like what what, what caused you to do that? The really short digest would be that going forward it will be the only reasonable way for us to stay profitable and continue to work like we want to work the issue is that a lot of things have changed since the early days of software where you usually before you bought just something and it was a thing you know you got a floppy and that floppy never got patched and you put it into your computer and you just owned it but nowadays you buy something and 1.0 releases are just mere sketches of what the app will maybe become eventually so you're expecting updates and and then the platform changes all the time like new devices get released every single year new Mm -hmm. os get released every single year and even throughout the year, something changes. Like the iPad Pro form factor just 
came out in i think november or december or something like yep. just throughout the year there's multiple events throughout the year where you need to adapt to platform changes and where users expect you to adapt so what you need to do is you need to have a constant stream of features or of releases where you adapt and where you add and then it's also that the that the app store doesn't really foresee paid updates right mm -hmm. so it's it's not built for paid upgrades. You can hack your way around and that does solve some problems, but it also uh, doesn't solve others. So one, one additional problem with the paid upfront or with the paid upgrade thing is that in order to sell a paid upgrade or a new release to your existing users, you really need to create a boom. So you need to have a new feature for everyone. You need to cluster them together. And when you cluster them together, then you don't ship updates before because you need to hold back features and you create risk because you don't know how long each of mm -hmm. those features uh, will take and you also don't know how they will be received. So if you had released one by one, you might have changed your course, but you're holding them back you're collecting features for maybe a year or two and you're doing boom. Maybe it's not boom because nobody wants those new right. features. So there's a lot of pressure on the developer to create gigantic releases that create a lot of attention and that every of your existing customers want to buy and doesn't make it better for the customer because the customer gets the feature later because it's held back. Then another aspect is if you have multiple platforms like we do, uh, we used to have two separate products. So people would have need to buy one version for the Mac and one for iOS. Right. And if you wanted to do a paid upgrade, even if it was possible, then the people would have to buy two updates, mm -hmm. which is really weird for an app that tries to make the impression that it's the same on every platform mm -hmm. and that has the exact same feature set on every platform. First of why would you have to buy it twice? And then why would you have to buy two updates? It just doesn't make sense. To, to, to have, it, to have yeah. it split like that. And then what you would end up with is people just buying one or the other. Mm -hmm. So, And for Ulysses, which has a library where everything is in there, you will run into a situation where one version has data that the other can't read anymore. And this, I mean, you can build your way around, hopefully, data corruption, but... Yeah. I mean, that's not a situation you want to you want right. to provoke or you want to you want right. to drive into. So there's just there's just so many aspects to this paid upfront or paid update thing that we that we just couldn't convince ourselves to go in that direction yeah. or stay yeah. stay the way we were. And another thing is planability for for us as a team. And I mean, that's also a point for the customer. But for us as a team, we get sucked up by maintenance more and more the more features we add the more maintenance we need to do so we right now we're spending like half our time with maintenance and for us to be able to continue to deliver new features is we need to grow the team but you can't grow the team if you can't like at least to some extent reliably predict mm -hmm. how things will be next year and with those big releases and big booms on just maybe feature releases or, the pay or pay paid updates, you have high spikes of sales and then they drop off to a very low level. And the question is, what kind of revenue do you want to rely on for your planning for the team? It's really difficult because, I mean, if you go with the spikes, then you're really, really desperate to always get those and get them high enough. 
if you go with the ground, like the sales after half a year after a release, for example, then it will be too low to let just maintain a team that is that is big enough to really go forward. Yeah. And and a subscription, we hope that it will solve this problem because we have subscribers. We know the churn rates. We know how many new subscribers we usually get. And if there's one month where we don't get any new subscribers and the churn rate isn't isn't gigantic, mm-hmm. then we still make money. And we so we have a lot of uh, planability and a lot of more certainty where things will be in half a year or one year. So we can grow the team and so we can outgrow this, oh, we need to do so much maintenance and it eats up all our development time for new features and improvements. We hope to get out of that as well. So you said you couldn't convince yourself to do something different, but was it a difficult decision? Did it take a long time to decide to switch to a subscription model? It it took forever. (laughs) (laughs) So we did it this August. And I think the first time we seriously talked about it was exactly two years before that. Wow. We had a serious discussion and the conclusion was, yeah, well... That would be the right step, but I, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't want to do it now. And at the time, there was no built-in support for subscriptions. No, there was no built-in support for subscriptions. Right. But it was obvious that that was the thing going forward. I mean, yeah. there were already examples. For example, Adobe has subscriptions mm-hmm. for five, six, seven something right. years now. Right. So there were some examples. And when we talk through, should we do a paid update? How do we do it? What are all the problems we run into? And all this planning stability and all, all, all the aspects I said, and, and we always came back to, well, with subscription, that wouldn't be a problem. And, uh, well, with subscription, that would be much better. With subscription, we would know how much money we would have in half a year. So we could exactly say if it's good to hire this person now or not. Right. So, and I mean, we, we, we did make progress. We did hire people, but it was always like, I have no idea. Right. And, and it was always like, well, with subscription, it would be better. So the topic kept popping up every single month, at least, uh, when we were doing some decisions, anything. And like one year before the switch, we got together in a retreat and we talked it through. And after we talked it through, everybody who wasn't convinced before was on the side, well, we should probably do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it took... but. Even still, like, uh, I think a couple more months at least until we really came together and decided, okay, we are doing this now. Yes, we are doing this switch now. And then I think the implementation took another eight months. So from the decision, let's do it now, all the preparations, all the development that went into it was really long and and, an elaborate process that we had to go through. We had to prepare the old apps. We had Mm -hmm. to prepare the new apps we need to we needed to find a strategy and how to make the transition and what we wanted to offer existing users what what should the price be what should the what should the, the structure of the offer be after all should we do free and premium shall we do uh, monthly and yearly shall we do packages of features and all all those all those things we we discussed and and we had to figure out and then we had to make an interface for it and then we had to test it and then we ran into a lot of walls and <laughs> needed to overcome those so and that was really intense development process so there were i i can't remember many other features that were that intense to develop mm-hmm. and, to, and to wrap wrap the head around than than the subscription thing. Well, I know it's only you only just did this change in August, right? So it hasn't actually been that long. 
But right. how do you feel about it now that it's out and that you're moving forward under that model? So I'm relieved that we've done it. And um, no matter if we succeed or we fail in this switch, I know that it was the right thing to do. So it was by principle, at least, mm-hmm. it was definitely the right thing to do. And it did have an impact in the community that I hoped we, we could have and, and it seemed to have. So that definitely worked out. And the financial side, we'll have to see. So um, I guess right now we are four months in. It's going to be fine. Uh, mm-hmm. But everybody who wants to do that as well, be in for stressful times. Uh, subscriptions work differently than paid apps. And uh, you right. really need to need to dig that because it really is very, very differently. Subscriptions build slowly over time. So before we would sell the app for Mac and for iPhone, and let's say you got both, uh, then you would spend $70 right. something. And now you're getting a subscription. So if you're getting a yearly subscription, you're spending only $40, which is like almost half of the paid price. Mm-hmm. You might be spending 40 next year. We sure hope so. But we don't have this money now, mm-hmm. right? The paid prices are higher and you get the money up front. We don't get the money again, but you get more upfront. Right. Compare that to a monthly subscription that is $5 at the moment for Ulysses. You get a subscriber, but you only get $5. five right. Right. You don't get $70 the moment he decides to adopt your app. Right. You do get 5 next month right. and the month after and over the next year. Yeah. But that really is different dynamics. That really shows in the numbers and that you really need to have... A buffer to accommodate for that mm-hmm. so you re- really need to you need to expect that your numbers will be much lower than they were before for at least some time and you need to be prepared for that yeah we were sort of prepared we knew that this would be coming but living through it is always different than seeing how it is so well if people want to learn more about ulysses and hopefully uh get it <laughs> and subscribe where can they do that ulyssesapp.com or just enter Ulysses on Google. Yeah. We will be on the first page. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I usually, <good>. I think. <laughs> and if people want to follow along with you, where, where can they where can they do that? I'm MacGuru17 on Twitter. <laughs> Don't judge me for that nickname. <laughs> I was 13 when I got this. Cool. Well, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. So that about does it for this episode of the Giant Robots Smashing Another Giant Robots podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm slash 258. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.